You are listening to 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. Stay tuned for the Heartland Labor Forum, radio that talks back to the boss. Forum, a weekly show of news, information, and commentary by and for the working people of Kansas City. This show is produced by a team of volunteers from a broad range of workplaces and unions. The views expressed on the Heartland Labor Forum are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any unions involved. Welcome again to the Heartland Labor Forum. I'm Judy Ansel. Tonight's show is being underwritten by Blake and Ulig, the law firm, and Bricklayers and Allied Crafts Workers Local 15. And we thank our underwriters <coughs> for their support. We'll have more messages from them ne- next time. On tonight's show, the National Nurses Union represents the RNs at Menorah and Research Hospitals, do, um, which are HCA hospitals. Does HCA want to bust their union? Well, find out from uh, our guest tonight. Then, one of the most common labor law violations <clears throat> is worker misclassification. That's when a worker is told they're an independent contractor when they're actually an employee. We'll talk to uh, the Economic Policy Institute, which has figured out how much this costs workers, and it's a lot. In the news, A small crop of new unions is growing in Kansas, and a teacher wonders which books he needs to throw out in Florida. Our feature at the end of the show is Remember Our Struggle with Ariana, and she's going to talk about the first strike ever of workers. You can wonder about where that would be. Um, And now for the news. This is the news from our side, March 9th, 2022, Registered nurses are organizing in Wichita. Back in November, RNs at the largest hospital in Wichita, Ascension Via Christi St. Francis Hospital, jo- voted to join the National Nurses Organizing Committee, an affiliate of National Nurses United, NNU. The union represents 650 nurses at the facility, which is the first private sector hospital in the area to become unionized by RNs. The hospital and the union began negotiations over their first collective bargaining agreement last month. Just yesterday, RNs at Ascension Van- Via Christi St. Joseph Hospital in Wichita voted to join the union, which will represent 350 RNs at that facility. Whitney Steinecke, RN in the Adolescent Psych Unit at St. Joseph, said, We celebrated March 8th. 
International Working Women's Day in the best way possible by voting to become members of the largest nurses union in the country. We're thrilled to join the movement for the high quality care our patients need and our communities deserve. NNU President Deborah Berger said, NNU nurses nationwide know that a strong contract is a key piece of our fight for better patient care, especially when it comes to staffing. We're so excited to see nurses organizing and fighting for strong contracts all over the country, and Wichita nurses are part of a union committed to taking on corporate health care for the sake of our community's health. There's other organizing in Kansas as well. Employees at Loud, Loud Light are organizing the SEIU in Wichita and will get voluntary recognition avoiding the need for an NLRB supervised election. That's the same local as organized the Salina Zoo workers last year. And Kansas Action for Children announced last week that they are organizing with the communication workers. This week saw an escalation in France of the massive waves of strikes and protests that have been occurring there since January. Hundreds of thousands of French workers took to the streets on Tuesday to oppose President Emmanuel Macron's idea of raising the retirement age from 62 to 64. People's World reports that over 250 protests were staged across France, and union-led strikes disrupted key industries to put pressure on the neoliberal government in Paris. Strikes at refineries put a stop to all oil shipments into France. Truckers blocked major highways, flights, and train services are being canceled. And in Paris, strikes shut down the Eiffel Tower and the Palace of Versailles. While the raising of the retirement age was the last straw in a series of attacks on the working class, many French organizers hope the demonstrations will turn into a movement against broader economic injustice. In the United States, the retirement age is being raised gradually from 66 to 67 for people born in 1955 and after. So why aren't American workers protesting like the French, or the British who have been holding massive protests and strikes in response to the skyrocketing cost of living in their country, facilitated by the conservative government of Prime Minister Rishi Sunak? As our legislatures <clears throat> debate bills aimed at dictating curriculum and banning books, teachers can use we uh, books teachers can use we thought we'd play a tiktok from brant robinson a teacher in florida asking which books he can keep sorry for the tinny quality of the recording so which books do i remove from my florida high school classroom because today after school we had a faculty meeting and we learned that our media specialist has to inventory every single book in our classroom whether it's a textbook whether it's any other book we might have in a personal library for our student use, every single book. Because last year under House Bill 1467, it requires now that every single book in our classroom be inventoried by our media specialists to make sure that no titles contain pornography, that they contain any references to gender identity, to sexual orientation, and of course, to race-based teaching. Now let that sink in for a second, because now I have a choice to make. I have three eight-foot-tall bookshelves in my classroom with subjects ranging from world religions to general nonfiction. I have an entire section of African-American history. I have all of American history ranged from the beginning all the way to the present. I have a bookshelf of nothing but classics, mass and trade size paperbacks. So now do I go through all of my textbooks and decide, do I wanna risk this book coming into the crosshairs of Moms for Liberty? Because all these textbook inventories, they'll now be shared with the public. And that's exactly what Governor DeSantis wants. He wants Moms for Liberty and other groups like that to scrutinize teachers like me because the consequences of violating that state law are a third-degree felony. So my friends, please be aware of what's happening here in Florida. It's come to my high school. It's come to every school in Pinellas County. It's coming to every school in the state of Florida. 
And when it comes to your estate, be warned, because you have to understand, the purpose of this is one thing, to intimidate teachers like me from actually teaching the real history of our country. So now I have to decide, do I risk a lawsuit? Do I risk a third degree felony? Or do I stand up to this and actually proudly display all the books in my classroom, most of which have been there for 10 or 15 years? I just want you to be aware of what's happening in the state of Florida right now, friends. We're standing, we're fighting, we're defending our students, we're defending our public schools because our public schools are the foundation of our democracy. You guys be well and have a great rest of your week. And that was Brant Robinson uh, <clears throat> on TikTok. So don't think it's just Florida. In Missouri, SB 694 would prohibit teaching about the 1619 Project or any successor theory or concept, and including critical race theory. This will cover K through 12. House Bill 952 is similar, but it also covers higher education. In Kansas, there are at least two bills, HB 2236, a parent's rights bill, which establishes parents' rights to direct their children's education, including the right to object to harmful and inappropriate educational materials, and SB 207, which places restrictions on school districts and employees' use of pronouns, if not gender assigned at birth. That's the news from our side. The news tonight was read by Ariana Blackman, Bennett Nowicki, and I'm Judy Ansel. There once was a union nurse who saw things had gotten worse. She noticed lots of work shifts, slots left blank by the boss who held the purse with only half a crew. He said, you'll bear the work of two. Standards fell, she had to tell that boss just what she'd do. Oh, you can't scare me, I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. Oh, you can't scare me, I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union till the day I die. This union nurse was wise to the company's rotten lies. The takeaways, co-pays, and ways that Bay State tries to downsize. Nurses give their all, but they can't always be on call. That was Ben Grosscup with Union Nurse, his take on the classic Woody Guthrie song, Union Made. Grosscup is a singer-songwriter and the executive director of the People's Music Network, a collective that promotes progressive ideas and values through song. I'm Mark Galis. Registered nurses at Research Medical Center and Menorah Medical Center, both owned by healthcare conglomerate HCA, are unionized through the National Nurses Organizing Committee, an affiliate of National Nurses United, the largest and fastest growing union and professional association of registered nurses in the United States, with nearly 225,000 members. Since the pandemic, there have been RN staffing shortages nationwide, including at Research and Menorah. But it turns out, that it's not from a lack of RNs. What's really going on? Joining us is Zoe Schmidt, registered nurse at Research Medical Center and member of the National Nurses Organizing Committee, an affiliate of National Nurses United. Zoe, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. First, can you tell us how many registered nurses are represented by the union locally? I believe that by this union, it's about 300 nurses at Menorah Medical Center over on the Kansas side, and then in Missouri, between Research Medical Center and Research Psychiatric Center, we've got about 600. And are these hospitals part of HCA? They are. 
the bargaining unit is it composed exclusively of registered nurses it is yes do you know how long rns have been unionized in the kansas city area I believe that at Menorah Medical Center, nurses unionized in 2000, and then at Research Medical Center, it was 2010. So those were a little before my time. I got to come in and bear the fruits of the hard work of the nurses before me. Um, I started at 2018, so nurses at Research Medical Center had already been unionized for a few years before I got there, um, which I noticed. It makes a big difference. And how so? Being a part of the union just gives us a voice in a way that we wouldn't have at a non-unionized facility. The nurses are able to organize as a group and stand up for the rights of our patients without fear of retaliation. We have some extra protections, which in turn protect our patients. So it's just a really powerful experience to know that we have the ability to advocate for our patients and ourselves. What exactly do registered nurses do? It's it's a term that gets thrown around and people know RN and registered nurse, but I'm not sure people fully appreciate the hard work that you all do. So could you tell our listeners what exactly do RNs do? Yeah, um, it's a lot. And the thing I love about nursing is that there's so much you can do with that, you know, that title, that degree. There's so many different areas of nursing you can work in. So at research, we've got nurses who are specifically in the operating room, nurses who are assisting in surgeries. We've got nurses who are assisting people when they come out of those surgeries in the PACU. We've got nurses who are specifically on the clinical side. So the ones administering, you know, chemotherapy, radiation treatments for patients with cancer. And then we've got nurses like me who are on the floor when patients are hospitalized for days at a time. So what I do is kind of everything that a patient needs throughout the day when they're in the hospital. I administer medications, both, you know, give pills, the IV medications such as IV antibiotics, sometimes immunotherapies. I perform assessments every day and then repeat those assessments throughout the day. So if there's any sort of changes occurring, I can be sure to know. Um, if there's any post-surgical complications, we review vital signs, make sure that they're all within normal parameters. We update our patients on the progression of their treatment, on their treatment plan. We update family members. We do patient education. Uh, sometimes people get new diagnoses that they don't understand. And doctors see, you know, a lot of patients throughout the day. One doctor can have, you know, 30 patients. So they're not always able to be in the room for as long. So the nurses are kind of the ones like, okay, here's what the doctor said. And here's what that kind of means, you know, kind of sometimes translate or just, you know, scary new diagnoses can be a lot to process. So sort of reiterating so that people can sort of process or answering questions that they may not think of till later on. And then also we, you know, obtain the vital signs, help people to the bathroom, make sure that they're fed and clean. I'm sure I'm forgetting something. That's a lot. That's a lot. I mean, that is that is a ton and I'm not sure people really, like I said, I'm not sure people really appreciate the hard work that goes on day after day after day that registered nurses do for people. Mm -hmm. And then it's, you know, it's saying like administering medications because that's, you know, their morning, you know, scheduled medications. But then it's also if they're in pain, you know, we're in there every two, three hours, making sure that we stay on top of that pain, making sure we manage that pain. So administering medication is one of those things that's continuous. And then it's making sure the effects of that medication are being monitored, making sure there aren't any 
you know, they're not experiencing any side effects, making sure that their pain is being managed. So it's ongoing. And you're really the first line. I mean, the, the one who's most attentive to a patient's needs, I would imagine. Absolutely. You know, doctors, the doctors, I love that. I adore the doctors at my hospital, but they can't be in the room or even on the unit all day. They've got a variety of patients spread throughout the hospital. So if something is going wrong, then we're the ones who notice, we're the ones who, you know, call who we need to call and try to get that resolved. If, you know, I'm on the medical surgical unit, so if they need to be transferred to a higher level of care, I'm the first one to kind of notice that and help facilitate that. How many shifts do RNs work at research? Usually, full, so full-time is three shifts a week. Part-time is two shifts a week. They're 12-hour shifts, so about seven to seven. So they're two shifts a day. Yes. During and since the pandemic, there have been RN staffing shortages at hospitals around the country. But the supply of RNs with active licenses is still quite strong. Uh, there are approximately 4.6 million RNs with active licenses, but only about 3.3 million RNs are employed, with about 1.8 million of those employed in hospitals. These numbers are from the National Council of State Boards of Nursing and the Bureau of Labor Statistics. What's really going on with these staffing shortages at our hospitals, and especially with respect to menorah and research? Yeah, thank you for bringing that up, because that is a good point. People try to say that there's a nursing shortage, but that is misleading what there is is a shortage of nurses who are willing to work under the current conditions at patient, you know, in the hospital. And that's because the conditions that we've been facing are challenging for us. And it's not because we have to work hard because being a nurse, we know working hard is part of the job and we do not mind working hard. It's the fact that we are having to work tirelessly. You know, I tracked 16,000 steps on one shift working hard and then still feeling like we're failing our patients because with the staffing that they're putting us under, with the amount of work we have to do, we're still not able to provide the care that our patients deserve. And it's exhausting to work, come to work day after day and know that whatever you do, you're still going to go home feeling like you failed. So there's only so much of that you can handle. And so nurses are leaving to be stay-at-home parents or find jobs in entirely different fields or try to find jobs working from home. But if conditions were to change, if staffing ratios, we call them, if basically if nurses were caring for four or five patients on my unit, like we were when I started, instead of the six that we're currently caring for, we nurses would return to the bedside. So in addition to number of patients, I mean, seeing and being responsible for more patients on a daily basis. What other working conditions would you say are affecting this staffing shortage? So in addition to having to care for more patients, which is hard because that's less time with each patient, less time to support them through what they're going to, less through less time to teach them about medications and processes, less time to help them understand what's going on, less time to notice those little changes that might be happening so we can stay on top of their medical care and intervene if necessary. That's less time with each person. And that's a huge, a huge deal. But also lately, there's been less support staff. So there's been less transportation staff, meaning that nurses more often have to take our patients down to like CAT scans, MRIs. There's been less patient care technicians, PCTs, uh, the ones who get vitals, blood sugars, help our patients to the bathroom. There's less of them. So we're having to do that more often. So nurses are 
basically it's called total patient care, which is when we don't have tech help and we're doing everything for every patient we have or some of our patients. So we've been seeing more of that lately. And then one of the biggest changes that we've seen is that lately, because we have less nurses on the unit, charge nurses have been having to take patients. Um, and what's, then, a, what's a charge nurse? So a charge nurse is the nurse, they're a registered nurse like us, but they are responsible basically for overseeing the whole unit. So like on my unit, we've got 49 beds, 49 patients usually. The charge nurse oversees all of the nurses who each have six patients. They assist the nurses if the nurses might be doing a procedure they're not as familiar with and just want an extra set of hands, extra pair of eyes. The charge nurse is able to support them in that way. The charge nurse is able to answer questions. Um, they're responsible for coordinating discharges, admits, making sure that patients who come to the unit are appropriate for that unit medically. They're responsible for assisting patients. If one nurse is in a room with a patient doing something that's going to take a while, they can call the charge nurse and the charge nurse can go in and help another patient who might need something. Um, the charge nurse helps if patients are upset or have questions or complaints about their treatment, the charge nurse can go and sort of mediate. So the charge nurse is crucial to helping the floor run smoothly and helping make sure patients stay safe. But when the charge nurse has six patients of her own, that's, you know, six, all the things I described earlier that nurses do, the charge nurse has to do all that for all of her six patients. And then everything I just described that the charge nurse has to do. I mean, no one person can do all of that. So patient care suffers, whether it's the pair, you know, the patients who are under the charge nurses care that day or the other patients, you know, it's if a charge nurse has six patients of her own, she can't always answer all of the nurse's questions or stay on top of everything going on on the unit and be prepared to help kind of intervene with any complications. It's chaos, honestly. These working conditions, you started to research before the pandemic. So were these problems prevalent before the pandemic during or just after, or all, all the above? <laughs> so, you know, it's not like anything is ever perfect, but I would say the biggest factor that contributed to these changes was in 2020, June, HCA Research Medical Center decided to change the staffing ratio on my unit so that instead of four or five patients per nurse, each nurse was expected to take six patients. And that change has been the biggest factor in, on my unit at least, from what I've seen in the decline of conditions. Is the union taking any steps to deal with that? Absolutely. We've been fighting back since day one. I was there in the meeting when this change to the patient load was first discussed, and I was able to say, you know, no, I have had, you know, I had had six patients at a time at one, you know, one or one or two times when there were last minute call-ins or something, and I had said, this isn't safe. I'm not able to provide the care that I want to for my patients when I have six at a time. Expecting nurses to take six patients on a regular basis is going to be disastrous for patient care. I was able to be there in the room and say that to them and tell them my piece and they didn't listen, but I was able to fight back against it. And I've been fighting back ever since. We've had events outside the front of the hospital where we've been able to make the public aware of what nurses are going through and therefore what patients are going through. We have monthly pro uh, professional practice committee meetings where we review 
what's called these assignment despite objection forms. Basically what those are are nice perks of being in a union where if nurses feel that our assignment that day is unsafe, we can fill out these forms and it protects us legally if anything were to occur. And it also creates a written record of the conditions that nurses are facing, what we're, you know, the fact that we're objecting and then what events occur due to that staffing. So if, for instance, we're like, hey, nurses all have six patients this day and three of those patients were performing total patient care, the charge nurse has six patients, this isn't safe, we can write that down. And then if patients fall, we can say like patients fell or, you know, things like that. So every month at the professional practice committee meetings, we review all of those forms throughout the entire hospital and are able to notice trends, uh, not specifically about staffing, but trends in, for instance, if certain equipment is broken or certain processes aren't going well, we can write all that down and then directly talk, you know, email our written recommendations to the chief nursing officer. We also have quarterly staffing committee meetings every three months where we're able to talk to management about our concerns about staffing specifically. Um, there's also other actions that we take. Uh, for instance, recently on several units, nurses took a vote of no confidence, which basically means that you know we laid out three, four uh, things we wanted from each unit that we thought were necessary for patient care. So for instance, on mine, it was for us to feel happy, you know, content about the work we're doing and our jobs here, we would need the ratios to be changed. So we were taking care of five patients. We'd need PCTs, patient care techs, for at least four per shift to assist us. So we'd need higher incentives, not because money is the big deal, but because when we're going to work facing these conditions, it's hard. So for nurses to come into work on their days off and be away from their families, we want to make sure that we're having enough compensation for the stressors we're undertaking that it makes that time away from our families feel worth it, feel like we're doing, you know, providing for those families. Um, so higher incentives and then just transparency with those incentive rates. What's what's HCA's response been to all these efforts? It has been lackluster. Um, we're still working hard and trying and having, an, without the union, I know things would be much worse because they've tried to put us at seven patients multiple times and we've been able to fight back because we have that union. I know non-unionized HCA facilities, nurses on, you know, and I keep saying the six or seven, that's because my unit, other units, it's, you know, like in the ICU, nurses are taking care of three patients when they should be taking care of one or two. Um, so the six is specifically my unit, but I know that like on medical surgical units at other HCA facilities that aren't unionized, I know they're going up to seven, maybe eight. But they keep saying, you know, oh, there's a shortage. There's just not enough staff. There's just not enough nurses. We can't change the ratios. We can't fix things. Um, the latest thing that we've been hearing is that nurses are not wanting to come. New nurses are not wanting to come to our facility to work or nurses are not wanting to stay because of the toxic work environment is the word that they're using, which I have not seen. Right. Like, I love my unit. I love my coworkers. I love the patients. We all do. We love the work we do. We just want to be able to do it well. We are at each other's sides. If we have the time, like we are helping each other out. And, you know, if one person is in another room, another nurse will give that patient medications or assist with dressing changes. We are there for each other, which I love about my unit. That's the reason I've stayed as long as I have is my coworkers. So when they try to stay, say that nurses aren't wanting to come here because 
the environment is toxic. That's just not true. It's a it's a good place to work in theory, and it just could be so much better. And that's what we're fighting for. Well, we're running out of time. Uh, this is a case in point of the power of a union, the good things that a union can do in a workplace. And I would just uh, encourage you to keep uh, fighting the good fight. Zoe Schmidt, registered nurse at Research Medical Center and member of the National Nurses Organizing Committee. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. We'll close this segment with another one from Ben Grosscup. This is Nancy on the med surge floor. Let me tell you the story of a nurse named Nancy and the way that she's been ignored. She grabbed her stethoscope and scrubs, kissed her husband and family, went to work on the med surge floor. Did she ever return? No, she never returned. And her fate is still unlearned. She may work forever in the med surge unit. She's the nurse who never returned. Nancy worked all night from 11 to 7, never letting her attention drift. Then the morning sun deceived her. There was no one to relieve her. Nancy could not get off her shift. Tuesday, March 14, 6 to 6.30 p.m., Radioactive Magazine interviews Columbia University professor Matthew Connolly about his new book, The Declassification Engine. He says that U.S. national security is actually threatened by excessive secrecy. A lot of secret intelligence is not actually secret, and what is secret is often not intelligent. Hear Connolly on Radioactive Magazine, March 14, 6 to 6.30 p.m. You are about to hear a paraphrased rendition of several conversations conglomerated into one. So there I was, listening to my old van and my new one. I just did it by donating my van to KKFI, and they turned it into the programming I take with me everywhere I go. So no matter where I'm at on the planet, I tell my smart speaker to play KKFI, or I'm cruising down the road in my new sweet ride, I've got KKFI and my old van going with me wherever I go. And I did it by going to kkfi.org. I found the support tab and learned how to donate my wheels. Thanks, KKFI. A huge thank you to everyone who's donated a car, boat, truck, van, or motorcycle to KKFI. And a future thanks to all of those who have yet to clean out their driveways. And the next song is by Johnny Dax. the gig economy instead of just one job he's got three working morning noon and night there isn't any end in sight that's life in the gig economy in the morning he mows along for a landscaper afternoon he's a clerk at the grocery store from six till twelve he pours drinks at a bar and crashes on his couch for a few hours. He's stuck inside the gig economy. Good evening. You are listening to the Heartland Labor Forum. I am your host, Zhong Jingli. And on tonight's show, we will be talking to Economic Policy Institute's analyst, Margaret Poidoff, one of the authors of EPI's recent report, The Economic Costs of Worker Misclassification. 
Welcome, Margaret. Thank you for having me. So the report is very interesting, but could you just uh, elaborate a little bit what misclassification of workers mean to our listeners? Just to give an overview, a quick overview, misclassification is when a worker is categorized as an independent contractor versus an employee. And that has some big costs, both economically, but also robs that worker of legal protections they could have as an employee, both on the federal and state level. If a worker is misclassified as an independent contractor, they are no longer guaranteed a minimum wage, overtime pay, labor protection such as unemployment insurance or workers' comp, because independent contractors are not legally guaranteed those rights under Fair Labor Standards Act, which is our wage and hour protections. They also don't have legal protections under the National Labor Relations Act, which guarantees most private sector workers the right to join unions and collectively bargain. So there's there's the legal protections that Mm -hmm. uh, workers are robbed from um, by being misclassified, but there's also an economic cost for workers too. We recently did a study that estimates the costs of 11 occupations that are have historically been misclassified. And we found that it does cost those workers about tens of thousands of dollars um, when they're classified as an independent contractor versus employee. So there's a financial stake for when this happens. So in theory, misclassification can happen to anyone, right? Any worker. But I mean, in reality, you mentioned the report estimated 11 particular sectors. So in reality, would workers in some specific sectors or occupations be more likely misclassified by their employers? Do we actually have any idea how large the misclassification might possibly be? Yeah, so this is a really tricky tricky question to answer, but there Mm -hmm. have been some studies um, based off of state enforcement of misclassification of certain occupations. And that analysis estimates that about as many as 10 to 30% of employers may be misclassifying their workers right now. And the, the, the industries that we particularly focus in are also examples of them, I should say, are construction workers, truck drivers, nail techs, home health aides. And the thing about these occupations that um, research shows have are usually misclassified, they are typically low-wage mm-hmm. um, occupations. And they're also occupations that have historically um, been occupied by women and workers of color as well. And so to that, these costs are even greater for them. Like what are the general methodologies in making the calculation? And what do you think the differences come from? Yeah. So when we were doing this analysis, the the costs that we typically think of that workers are not receiving as independent contractors are benefits such as paid time, like vacation Mm -hmm. or sick time, overtime pay that they potentially would get for the hours they worked, retirement benefits as well. So Mm -hmm. those are kind of the costs that we um, assume workers are missing out on if they're misclassified as an independent contractor instead of an employee. There also are additional costs that to consider if a worker is is classified as an independent contractor, they have to pay their their share of Social Security and Medicare benefits. So there's the social insurance costs too that independent contractors have to take on. In a typical employee-employer relationship, the employer and employee contribute to Social Security and Medicare on 
separately versus right. independent contractor, they have to take on that full cost. Right. So indeed, it's kind of the economic cost being shifted from employers, uh, largely to employees. And it's not just short-term immediate pay, but also long-term benefits, all these uh, long-term factors, I yeah. see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I do want to say it is also a conservative, conservative estimates because we're not really able to, um, it's kind of hard to capture the monetary benefit too of things like the ability to join a union. Employees are able to join unions or most private sectors have the legal right to join or guaranteed right to join a union. And so there's also the the monetary aspect of that, that unions are are known. Um, research shows that there is a union wage premium and union benefit premiums also associated. So we don't even count that in our cost estimates as well. I see. So it's already the lower bound of economic costs. Yes. Right? It could be even higher. So could you, like, I guess for our listeners, it's hard to imagine the actual cost in monetary numbers. Could you pick one of the occupations um, you studied and give us some numbers? And I guess the idea is probably if we can know how large the loss is compared to people actually receive. We have some ideas about how serious the problem is, like for individual workers in certain sectors. Give you like a monetary cost of one. Um, one example that we use, and I think is prime example, is construction workers. According to our calculations, the misclassification costs that uh, for the typical construction worker can range anywhere between $10,000 to $16,000 per year. So those are mm-hmm. large costs to worker if they're misclassified. Um, yeah, I see. And for different sectors, you know, some workers might even suffer more than that, right? Large data. Employers can use this as a tool of a way to kind of escape from paying their fair share in Social Security and Medicare. That's that's by by misclassifying um, their workers. So it's a very typical, probably it's an increasingly widely used labor saving strategies by business. Right, to save their cost on labor and also save their cost on any labor-related costs, like a broadly defined compensation. So yeah, yeah that's correct. I would I would say that's a growing trend, and um, especially when it comes to gig workers, such app-based mm-hmm. works, such as Uber and Lyft and DoorDash and stuff like that. I think that's a tactic of theirs right. business model. Yeah, I see. Yeah, so for either related to these kind of digital labor platforms or in relatively traditional sectors like retail sales workers, they are also quite likely to be misclassified. Well, I also think there there is the idea that this kind of business model also can mm-hmm. creep into our, to just our already, I hesitant to say already weak labor standards, mm-hmm. but we do have some weak labor standards that already exist. And so these, right. for instance, our federal minimum wage is only $7.25 an hour. And so we already already we already we have some sort of, uh, we have labor protections, but they, they have been weakened over the years. And um, the use of misclassification potentially can just w- weaken those protections even further, even for, for those folks who are already um, legally correct, or I should say correctly classified as an employee. There's definitely potential for furthering, further weakening labor standards um, with this kind of model. I see, 
I see. Yes. Yeah. So this is kind of really a concern, like for all workers or people who are interested in labor rights. Do you have any like suggestions about this concern? How we should deal with like these relatively pervasive business strategies these days? Yeah, I think there there's definitely there's like some actions at the federal on the federal level. For instance,、mm-hmm. we can strengthen enforcement with the Department of Labor to just to focus on these occupations that have. Are known for having misclassification to ensure that workers are not being misclassified. So that that's one thing that we could easily do now、mm. with the tools that we have right now. I should say another thing that we we mentioned in our report is we the establishment of a strong like uniform protective legal legal t- test to determine employee status, such as an ABC test,、mm-hmm. which you need to follow. Like a three prong test to ensure if you meet all three of those criteria, then you should be classified as a independent contractor. It's really the default is that you are an employee, and you have to prove why you need to be an independent contractor to really help ensure that folks are not being misclassified in that sense. And yeah, there's also state level states can also pass laws to help strengthen、um, employee status、um, as well,、It's、like the state level ABC test. Yeah, I think. I, we mentioned this in in the, our analysis, but one way is both so the employer is communicating to the employee or the、mm-hmm. worker in this case、mm-hmm. adequate, like just being transparent about the worker's employment status and given reasoning why they the the employer believes that the worker should be an in, independent contractor if that is what they're classifying、uh-huh. their their worker. I think.、Um, It, I mean, it is a sad reality, but I think a lot of workers don't know the rights that they are guaranteed if they were to be classified as employee.、Right. So it's it's good to know. It's it's good for it should be a good practice for employers to be transparent of why they are classifying the workers as such,、mm-hmm. and that in self empowers the worker to know their rights and what they what they have legally protected if if it's explicit. Right. Yeah, I really like one particular word the report uses, talking about this as a wage theft experienced by misclassified workers. Do you think there might be better ways for our employees to reclaim the lost kind of economic benefits they should have been given? Yeah, I mean, I think. I, we yeah we use wage theft because that 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 is misclassification misclassification is a type of wage theft and I think it's a strong it's a strong、right. word for it and yeah I that that is why we used it because it is that is what is happening I think some people might not、right. recognize that misclassification is a form of wage theft because、mm-hmm. it's yeah it's a serious form of wage theft、um, that workers yeah are maybe not be aware that's happening and there are tools currently to help them reclaim. That through the Department of Labor or State Department、okay. of Labor too. I see. So it's not just、uh, like these are the workers who are many of them are who are probably already be paid less than the federal minimum wage. But on top of that, they are also losing the required overtime pay and or other benefits that can be possibly monetized. Calculated, estimated, but also certain like possible union premiums, if they had 
um, collective bargaining rights, etc. Right? Okay. Yeah. yeah I mean, it, it really sounds not just a wage theft, but also like a social debt to mm -hmm. the large economy. Right? Like not just the workers who actually contributed their labor to the economy, but also like everyone who these days increasingly reliant on these workers. Like many of them are actually working in essential sectors like healthcare. Like I think you mentioned like housekeeping cleaners or home health and personal care aides. They are really essential workers to provide care to the large society in general. Right. So I yeah. feel like probably as a whole society we have the responsibility <laughs> to uh, really make more people aware of this possible um, th this particular problem. Yeah, that's that's very true. And I will say, because you mentioned essential workers too, because mm -hmm. um, yes, they, a lot of these occupations are very mm -hmm. much essential workers, and all of them help make sure like our economy is functioning some sort. Right. But I do want to note too that during the pandemic, um, when there was the unemployment insurance expansion, independent contractors were actually allowed to claim unemployment insurance during COVID pandemic. So it shows that we have the ability to provide these benefits too. If we right. like one, one aspect is to obviously combat the misclassification mm -hmm. of workers who should be classified as employees and not independent contractors. But in this case too, it shows that we have the ability to for those who are true independent contractors, that they can also receive some some sort of level protections and benefits that employees also are guaranteed under the law. So I I I think that's a that's an interesting case study. I think we need to look back on and seeing how can we expand benefits and protections for independent contractors as well. Right. Yeah, that's a very good point. Like from our observation and experience in the pandemic, we do notice there's the capacity to make these workers um, benefit from social established some existing benefits. And we just need more um, political willingness as well as other enforcement to kind of make sure they are less likely to be misclassified and they have um, they can have other benefits like other employees, like what they have been doing, right? As they provide the labor as um, ordinary employees, but they are not legally classified as employees. Great, that's really helpful. We are listening to Heartland Labor Forum, and I am interviewing our policy analyst from Economic Policy Institute, Margaret Poilot. So, Margaret, do you have any um, closing remarks to say about the program and about uh, EPI's study on this particular topic? No, I think we covered a lot in this discussion. Uh -huh. But yeah, just just want to emphasize that misclassification is a, it's a big problem in the United uh -huh. States. And it does have a real cost both financially and right. it's also yeah, so um, I'm happy. I'm like really happy to have this discussion with you, Jonjin. Um, and Hopefully yeah, listeners just find this interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, I really appreciate this report because we have heard a lot of arguments from the business side saying this is very obscure, right? It's hard to quantify and a lot of people emphasized 
the claimed or the so-called benefits of freedom uh, or independence without giving very clear idea about the financial loss. And I do really think the report gives us some guidance in the debate, in the policy debate, and provides us some ideas about what policymakers can possibly do. And particularly important, how workers can be more aware of their own rights. So thank you a lot for your time. Thank it's you. really nice to have you. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Good evening, and welcome to Remember Our Struggle. I'm Ariana Blockman. Twenty days have passed in the month, and rations have not been given to us. Tonight, we're going to go so far back, we only have one person to quote, a scribe named Amunacht. Tonight, we are going to cover the very first recorded labor strike in world history. It was the 29th year of the rule of Ramses III, as our one source document describes it. For our references, that's around 1170 BCE in the country currently called Egypt. We know about this strike due to the survival of a single government administrative document known as the Turin Strike Papyrus, written by a scribe named Amunacht, who was personally involved in the event. To set the scene, the town today is called Deir el Medina after the church at its center, but that church was formerly a temple to the goddess Hathor, and back in 1170 the settlement was called Setmat, or the place of truth. Setmat was founded as a place for the royal tomb builders to live while they were employed. It was a somewhat geographically isolated area from the rest of society, possibly to protect the royal mystique and secrecy. The workers involved were skilled artisans employed in building the tomb for the pharaoh himself. They were not slaves, and they did have legal rights, and although they labored in a pre-coinage society, they were owed regular wages in the, in the form of a specific quantity of grain at the beginning of each month. The artisans involved in the strike would be considered middle class by today's standards, receiving a wage three times that of the basic agricultural labor, laborer. They also occupied a position of religious and governmental honor as skilled laborers for the god-king's tomb. This village of Setmat was extraordinarily well-preserved, as are numerous administrative documents, which offers incredible insight into the way of life of people living so far back. The work week was eight days on, on and then two days off, but records indicate a day off wasn't too hard to come by, even for the official reason of arguing with one's wife or having a hangover. For a long time, documents indicate shipments of grain had been an issue for the royal government. The records of the reigns of the previous two pharaohs also showed some records of delayed grain payments. But things really got bad under Ramses III. According to Amunacht, the strike, the strike was precipitated by the wheat rations being seriously late two months in a row, the second time by 20 days. The reasons given for this vary, but most scholars agree the problem was threefold. Governmental corruption was already a problem, even back then, as was bureaucratic ineptitude. The weather hadn't been very forgiving of late, which had led to a lower than expected harvest. And the dangerous and mysterious coalition known as the Sea Peoples had mounted their latest, their largest fleet ever for their third assault upon the Kingdom of Egypt, but had again been successfully repelled. But this had cost so many lives that labor shortages then ensued. Ramses III was the head of a religion as well as the head of a state, and within Egyptian culture the tomb was the way the pharaoh was remembered by his people. He was responsible for not only maintaining order and defending the borders, but also for the religion of his entire country. The system was governed by something called Mat, and it obligated him to be a good ruler for those who were under him and specifically listed ways that were considered to be just. 
The workers at Setmot claimed that Mott was being violated by their being denied their wages in a timely manner, so they laid down their tools and they walked out. Their foreman had no idea how to respond to this, and were reportedly dumbfounded as something like this had never happened before. To resolve the matter, Amanacht went down to the temple of Hormheb personally to make the case and beg for relief. The priests there agreed that Mott dictated the workmen should be paid promptly, but they also had only enough wheat on hand to give them a partial payment, which was still enough for them to temporarily go home satisfied. The cat was, though, as they say, out of the bag, and the promptness of grain payments didn't improve anytime soon. To the continued consternation of foremen and priests, the workers had a new tool in their toolbox for dealing with not being paid and for dealing with poor working conditions, the strike. The foremen and priests were sympathetic to the workers, according to Amanacht, agreeing that the right thing to do was to pay the workers what they were owed, but in a phrase I'm sure no one has heard before, their hands were tied. I hope you've had a great time learning about the first ever recorded labor strike in history in present-day Deir el-Medina, Egypt. Have a great evening, everyone. And I guess, you know, since we, we've been talking about wage theft, I mean, that's what um, the... It's not new. Yeah, yeah, right. Wage theft is definitely not new. And uh, it's, good, it's good to know that the strike isn't either. Um, was there a word that they called the strike? I didn't catch it, I'm afraid. Yeah, okay. Because, you know, the word strike is actually a sailor's term. Hmm. Um, yeah, they, when sailors went on strike, they would strike the sails. They would pull down the sails. So that's where the word comes from. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. So now for the Heartland Labor Forum calendar. Um, <clears throat> our calendar is on our Facebook page, or at least it will be later tonight, the Heartland Labor Forum Facebook page, uh, which is where you can find many of the links that we're going to mention to register for various things. But I first want to say the musician who has um, <clears throat> who plays our theme song step by step john mccutcheon will be appearing saturday evening at 8 p.m at the polsky theater on the campus of johnson county community college uh, some of us heartland labor forum people are going and um, it's i'm sure going to be a very good concert the uu forum it's called For the Plaintiffs, the Legal Fight Against Missouri's Abortion Ban with Denise Lieberman will be Sunday, March 5th at 9.30 a.m. And this is a hybrid event. You can either go to Unitarian Universalist Church at 4501 Walnut. Um, it's in Conover Hall. Or you can attend online and get a link if you go to allsoulskc.org. The Missouri Women's Political Caucus panel discussion on Americans United for the Separation of Church and State lawsuit against the abortion ban in Missouri will be Tuesday, March 14th at 6.30 p.m. Register for a virtual event at MoWPC, that's Women's Political Caucus, MoWPC.org. There's a rally for CanCare expansion. This is Medicaid expansion in Kansas, Wednesday, March 15th, 1.15 p.m. at the Kansas Capitol. And this is sponsored by the Alliance for a Healthy Kansas. And you can find a link about this and to register on their webpage. The Pump for Nursing Mothers Act, a brand new law, what advocates and employers need to know. This law gives the right 
for nursing mothers to be able to pump milk at work. Um, this event is Thursday, March 16th, 1 to 2 p.m. It's online, and if you want to find a link, either go to the Heartland Labor Forum Facebook page to register or email WHD, which is Wage and Hour Division, WHD-Events at dol.gov. Wyandotte County Democratic Breakfast, Saturday, March 18th, 8.15 for breakfast, 9.15 for speaker. It's at Las Islas Marias, 4929 State Avenue in Kansas City, Kansas. And I think they're celebrating an anniversary of the breakfast at that event. Labor Notes, online, Stewards Workshop, Thursday, March 23rd, 7 to 8.30 p.m., Register at labornotes.org slash events. And finally, and that's it, actually, there are a few open positions for organizers um, right now in the Kansas City area. Missouri Jobs with Justice is hiring a Kansas City organizer, someone dedicated to workers' rights with a willingness to build relationships across race, class, and life experiences. Our base and work are complex, but critical to the power we need in Missouri. Coalition work is hard, and we need someone curious about people and hungry to build grassroots power. If you are interested in applying or know someone who would be great at it, uh, be a great fit, uh, please go to mojwj.org and look for job opportunities. That's it for tonight's show. Tune in next week. We're going to have a panel discussion called uh, on a book called Labor, Power, and Strategy, organizing around choke, point, choke points. Um, this is going to be a, a discussion with ex very experienced labor organizers about strategy for strikes. The Heartland Labor Forum is a member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Check out the rich diversity of programming related to workers and unions at laborradionetwork.org. Thanks to tonight's engineer, Stephen Hill. And stay tuned for the Thursday night special, which is Shots in the Night Radio Theater. And also, please fill out the listener survey at kkfi.org and tell us your favorite shows. listening to the Heartland Labor Forum, a show by and about workers, our workplaces, and our labor movement. We are radio that talks back to the boss. And you can talk back to us, too. Send us your feedback, your workplace stories, news, and ideas for shows to Heartland Labor Forum, KKFI, at gmail.com. Our website, where we archive shows and post our upcoming ones, is heartlandlaborforum.org. The views expressed on this show are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any of the unions involved. Tune in every Thursday evening at 6 or to our rebroadcast Friday mornings at 5 right here, 90.1 FM. We still got our pride, cause we are the working class and place to be He said if I were Frank Sinatra I'd pull strings and through political pull you'd be
wings with all the 